Hi, and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia Franks. And I'm Serena Chen. In this episode, we're talking about rejection, whether it's personal or professional, whether it's just extremely harsh or it's a rejection you were kind of expecting. They're still never fun. It's never fun to put yourself forward for something, to ask for something and to be told no. To be told that maybe you're not good enough or you're not suitable or you don't fit correctly. For some people, I'm thinking journalists, actors, people who constantly have to put themselves out there, rejection is a part of their career, but it's still not easy. And so this episode, we're going to be talking about our personal experiences with rejection, the ways we kind of manage and handle that, and just kind of like rejection as a concept. Like, it fundamentally comes from living in a competitive world. And the way we perceive rejection is linked to the fact that we perceive people who get things as being good and people who don't get things as being bad. And that's not necessarily a correct value judgment. So it's going to be a fun episode. Um, basically, this this topic came about because I was fairly recently rejected from something I applied to, a women in STEM development program. And I'm not really in science anymore, but I still work in technology. So I was like, yep, this is okay. I'll be suitable for it. I know people have gone through the program. Like I've spoke, I get invited to the panels that they speak on already. So like, I'm, I'm already doing my thing, guys. <laughs> and I was not even shortlisted for it. And I felt really, really bad. I think part of it is that in science, you attach so much of your personal value to your ability to be a good scientist. And this mm-hmm. felt again, like I was trying to be a good scientist and I was being told that I was not good enough. The other factor to that as well is I'm non-binary. I applied for this women in STEM development program and I hadn't asked beforehand. And a lot of the time I try to, I try to reach out and say like, Hey, I realize this is a women's program. I'm non-binary. I was assigned female at birth. I'm pretty feminine. Like I'm real cute. Um, (laughs) So would it be suitable for me to apply? And something I've tried to stop doing as much is to do that, is to essentially ask for permission to apply to something because I don't feel like I should because essentially women's programs aim to improve gender diversity, increase gender equity. And as someone who is non-binary, like, you know, if you had to rank the genders in order of the kind of privilege they get, it goes men, women, non-binary people, trans men mm. and trans women, all kind of at the bottom together. Like, we, we, don't, we don't do great in our life outcomes, shall I say. And this was one of the first times I had explicitly made the choice not to ask beforehand. And I was very, very stressed out that by not asking that choice, I put a lot of time, a lot of energy, like getting work to agree to my application, talking to them about like paying for the funding if I ended up going through with it that I'd done all that and because I hadn't asked beforehand like I essentially had been kicked out just disqualified essentially on the basis of my gender identity that wasn't true because <laughs> I did email them afterwards and I said yeah should I have even applied because I'm non-binary and they were like absolutely like we yeah. do refer to the group as being women in STEM so you you need to be comfortable with that because like that's just part of our marketing material mm-hmm I'm just like, yeah, look, fair enough. Marketing's horrible. Uh, I feel you. Like, I've, yeah. I've been involved and, like, had to market so many women in science groups that 
are gender equity in science groups. So like, I really do understand that. And that was, that was kind of a relief, but it also kind of made me feel still a little bit, a little bit bad. Right. Like, cause mm-hmm. I, I'm aware of how many diversity boxes I tick. Right. <laughs> and a lot of the time I feel like, you know, I should be able to get through on merit. Like I'm really smart. I'm really good at what I do. I'm like clearly just like talented, full of potential. Mm. And then I feel like what that doesn't get me across the line for, like the fact that I tick diversity boxes should get me across the line for, right? Like, you know what? I'm non-binary and I'm disabled and I've done all of this. Like, so I'm exceedingly impressive and you should let me just like come and fix the world. (laughs) And so all of that was essentially being rejected. And yeah, like it, it sucked. It felt like yeah. another another rejection from science. And essentially, like, I didn't apply for any postdocs after my PhD. I knew that I wanted to leave academia, wanted to become a tech person. And in that way, like, I'd avoided the constant, never-ending rejection that is a career in academia. And this was kind of my first experience with it, just being mm. told, like, oh, actually, no, like... And they were very nice. They were like, I don't want to, I don't want to mischaracterize this program. Cause like they sent this email being like, there's so many really talented people. Like we're super impressed mm-hmm. with everyone. The shortlist was the hardest thing we've ever done, which like could mm. all be lies. Right. Like, but they're nice lies if they are. And I, you know, like, I doubt they're lies though. No, I know. I know. And, and you're going to have <laughs> a lot to say on this. I feel, um, but I don't get rejected a lot, which I think is probably also playing into how, emotional I was about this like Mm -hmm. generally when I apply for things I'm told either like yes or you need to do this extra thing and then yes Mm -hmm. that's really nice (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) or I've already decided that I don't care about the thing I'm doing which I think is like very much reflective of the fact that like you know I was a high achieving teenager and so Mm -hmm. like I'm not I'm not terrified of failure like I'm okay with failing but what mm. I hate is being rejected. Mm-hmm. Um, so please give me all your thoughts because you've been on the other side of this quite a bit. I wouldn't say quite a bit, but I think I've definitely been on both sides of the coin where, um, especially as I was finishing up my honours in university and I went through all that thing where I suddenly had to find a job and I applied for a bunch of jobs and was rejected for all of them. I had to, you know, I experienced like failure and rejection um, pretty much all at once. <laughs> and uh, it, it did suck. Like, rejection really sucks. And of course, you know, there's always the... I think everyone would have experienced rejection at least once or twice in their life. Um, and I don't want to downplay how much that sucks. Especially, you know, if you are in this group of high-achieving teenagers who... Usually when you apply for something, you get met with a yes. Um, being told no is suddenly, suddenly feels very personal. And definitely like when I was much younger, I, I took these rejections extremely personally, which I really shouldn't have. Yeah, it felt like, it felt like an affront to, you know, my work and who I am as a person and like my future potential. That really, really sucks and it hurts and it sucks especially if, you are very uh, selective with your time and your effort 
and you choose to put so much effort and energy into this application or this one thing um, only to be told no so yeah that absolutely sucks but as I grew up as I joined the workforce as I sat on the other side of a hiring table or a selection committee the perspective changes a lot because truly when you read through applications often hundreds of applications you read through hundreds of CVs portfolios it's really difficult to judge it's extremely difficult and oftentimes the people applying are all really impressive in different ways as well which is the hardest thing is that they're great in different ways and you want to kind of encompass that diversity of greatness while still like what I'm trying to say is there's no right metric and no one on any kind of selection committee or hiring committee has a solid uh, strategy to choose the quote-unquote right people and chances are they're probably not going to choose all the right people so a lot of the time it's um it's a lot of chance and when I understood just how difficult these selection processes were you start to take rejection a lot less personally I so every year um our work does Summer of Tech, which is this internship program for students coming into tech. And BNZ gets a lot of applications, as do a lot of other tech shops in Wellington. And I had to go through a bunch of CVs and portfolios and accept and reject people through the stages of this recruitment. Mm. And there were so many fantastic designers that I had to reject because different reasons but one of the main reasons one of the most frequent reasons was that their style and their creativity wasn't quite a match for the work that we were doing and I felt like if they came to BNZ specifically where it's where it's quite a large company and we have you know quite uh, we have brand guidelines we have style guides we have these styles that people will need to adhere to I feel like that kind of work, while really um, empowering for some designers, would be really detrimental to some other designers who may may find a better fit at a creative agency or somewhere like Weta. We had a lot of people that, like, I took one look at their portfolio. It's like, you should be going to Weta Digital. They're like, you would be stifled in this environment. So a lot of the times rejection is because someone really admires you and admires your portfolio and your work but feels like it wouldn't be a perfect match and when you know you've got hundreds of applications for one place or I don't know 500 applications for 40 places you kind of really are looking for a perfect match scenario even though you probably won't get it so it's it's things like that that make me realize um, just how not personal rejection is Um, I know oftentimes when I was younger and I got rejected, I felt like someone had a problem with me specifically. Mm -hmm. And I would just sit around being like, what's their problem with me? What did I do wrong? I don't understand. But trust me, no one has a personal vendetta. Uh, No one has a problem with you. No one has a problem with your work. A lot of it really is finding that match. And a lot of it really is just chance and people taking a gamble 
Yeah. Um, well, like, I absolutely got my start in science by a professor taking a gamble with me. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not really an A-plus student, like, exams and me. Like, I'm, I'm fine at them, right? Like, I'm not great. Um, and I was friends with a PhD student in this professor's lab. And she talked me up to him and I had a meeting with him. And I love genetics, really. And that was why mm-hmm. I got a placement. Like my first summer school, like my summer school placement in his lab was because we had that meeting and he was like, you're clearly really passionate. Like, mm-hmm. I want you to be in my lab for four months. And I'm just like, I'm a second year who knows nothing, but thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. I don't know. Like sometimes I find it really difficult because like, I haven't been directly involved in hiring processes, but I've definitely been involved in like outreach events where we've kind of been trying to look for people who seem like they would be a good match and kind of pulled them into our circle and be like, hey, maybe you should apply and like sort of support them through the application process. Um, Mm. And the thing I find really frustrating is often I can see where people's gaps are and Mm -hmm. I never know how to say to them, hey, you're clearly really smart. Can you hold a conversation? And I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm in tech. Like there are a lot of people who are geniuses, but we do client-facing work. Like, you need yeah. to have, like, the patter. You need to have the charisma yeah. to work with us, really. Mm-hmm. And, like, charisma particularly is not really something that can be taught easily. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I never know how to say to people, like, I love you. You're, like, brilliant. Like, this chat about mm-hmm. AI, just wonderful, 10 out of 10. Can you talk about the weather? <laughs> because it seems like you can't yeah Yeah, and this is where a lot of um, hiring processes can be quite unfortunately biased because of lack of resource and lack of time Um, because when you hire I think people in hiring are very aware that you can teach people hard skills like if you get a programmer who doesn't know javascript yet you can teach them javascript that's easy. If you get a designer who doesn't know how to work with Illustrator yet, you can teach them Illustrator. That's all good. It's hard to teach people the quote-unquote soft skills. It's hard to teach people how to communicate effectively. It's hard to teach people uh, how to be respectful of others. Like, that seems like such a low bar, but in tech you'll get a lot of people who just don't give two shits how other people feel. And... It's hard because the way to hire in that kind of situation is to hire for people who have who have the soft skills, who uh, have the kind of interpersonal skills, and to do that because it's it'll be easier to teach them the hard skills later. Whereas if you hire someone who you know is an A plus on all the hard skills, but but if they don't see the value in communication, then it's going to be really hard to teach that to them. And that makes me feel quite uncomfortable because then a lot of the times we're biased towards uh, hiring people who are naturally good at communication and not natural. You know what I mean? Yeah, who I I would probably say who appear to be naturally good at communication. (laughs) Sure, Um, yeah. Because, like, I definitely, I come from a background where, like, I was, I'm autistic. Like, I haven't always been good at communication and it's definitely something that I've had to learn and be really proactive Hmm. with making sure that like I learn the cues people give Mm -hmm. that mean that I can be more 
empathic. Right, but that's that doesn't mean you're bad at communication. That means you're good, except you had to work really hard to yeah. get there. That's something that really frustrates me with tech, is people seem to think that they can be tech wizards and yeah. never have to learn how uh-huh. to communicate with another person, how to care about mm-hmm. another person, how to like work in a team even. Yeah. And hard agree. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It just it frustrates me so much. Yeah. On the flip side, that's a frustrating thing um in tech is you have a lot of people who also hire way down the other end where they hire for hard skills and they hire for the people who seem like geniuses but then can't work on a team and there are plenty of people I can guarantee you plenty of people in tech you'll know um, that don't think communication and teamwork and that interpersonal skills are a part of their job but it is working on a team is a part of your job and if you can't work on a team then you're bad at your job and a lot of people still don't get that they think oh I'm you know, I'm a C++ whiz, I, I can code better than anyone. I don't have to talk to anyone, I'm right all the time, everyone should just listen to me. And that can be really frustrating to deal with. Because again, it's hard to teach soft skills. Much harder than it is to teach hard skills. And I think that's something that STEM fields especially deal with a lot. You get these kind of like lone wolf genius types um, who can't work with other people. And that's a real problem when you're in a business and a company that's when you, when you have to work as a team. And to a large extent, like that's allowed to happen in academia, right? Cause like, yeah, even if you work as part of a team in a lab, once you get above a certain level, you can do whatever you like. Like if you're either looking mm-hmm. at tenure in the U S or if you're looking at your publication record in places like New Zealand, Australia, if you publish mm-hmm. well enough, you don't have to be a nice person. Like, and I've seen this in so many professors where it's just like, you don't have to show basic empathy. You don't have to care about other people because you publish and you get grants. And this is something that I really, has always really bothered me, like particularly throughout my PhD is like, so I got into my PhD program. I did not get an Australian postgraduate award, which is the basic scholarship that most um, Australian PhD students, Australian and New Zealand PhD students will get. Um, and I didn't get it because my marks in third year weren't good enough. I had two papers that I was author on, I had excellent marks for my honours year, but the exams I did in third year I didn't do well enough on, and therefore I was not good enough for an Australian postgraduate award. I had this extreme crisis of self where I was like, I spent time Mm -hmm. teaching, I spent time doing debating, was that all a mistake? Mm -hmm. Should I have just been a loner where, like, I just, I studied all the time? Like, should I have just done that? Because then I would have the scholarship. Um, and then I got a scholarship from the Australian Mitochondrial Research Foundation, um, they're now called Osmito. And when I asked, I was like, hey, like, thank you for the scholarship. Can I just ask, like, what did you think of my extracurriculars? Um, the CEO, Sean, who called me to tell me this, he said, well, yeah, like, that's why we wanted you. We think you'll be really good. Like, we think... Mm that shows that you have great communication skills and you can talk about mitochondrial disease to other people. And that's what we want. Those are the people that we want studying this so that we can increase awareness. And it's just this huge disconnect between like the very sharp academic processes that say, well, if you don't publish, if you don't get good marks, who are you even? And 
the reality, like, and I think the reality, particularly in medical science, but the reality in a lot of science where outreach is a huge part of what is necessary in order to have anyone caring about your work. Mm -hmm. It's so frustrating (laughs) and stem when that happens. And it's, I don't know, I don't know if it's, if this is generational specifically, like definitely growing up, I also put a lot of importance on certain awards and scholarships and having that be some kind of external validation of your personal worth. And that's something that I still struggle with quite a bit, relying on external validation rather than internal validation. When it comes to dealing with things like rejection, uh, knowing how to seek internal validation rather than rely on external validation is a really big part in learning how to deal with that. And I don't know about you, but I'm definitely still struggling (laughs) with that, even if I don't care as much as I did um, in high school about like awards or um, scholarships or even good marks. I still, like a big part of me still cares a lot about what other people think of me. And that's not healthy. That's not great. Um, I think if I got better at not relying on other people, I would get much better at handling rejection. The thing I find really weird about myself is I'm quite good at personal rejection. Like, I have no problem with, like, asking someone who's cute, who I jam with, out for a date, and then being like, no, I'm not feeling it. Or I'm not interested in you, or I have a Mm. partner already, and it's just like, that's fine. And I think part of that is, like, my internal monologue prior to that allows for rejection to happen where it's just kind of like they're allowed to not like you you're perfect and they can be wrong and that's allowed (laughs) to happen whereas particularly for things like you know this program I applied for I had not allowed for rejection as an option I was like yeah Mm. I'm a shoo-in like I'm great like I tick all their boxes like I'm clearly brilliant like I I fit everything they want from an applicant Um, Mm -hmm. And I'd had previous people who'd gone through this program say to me, yeah, you're absolutely a shoo-in. And so I hadn't put into my mental framework that rejection was something that could happen. Or Mm -hmm. even I was like, I was willing to be rejected at the shortlist stage, not at the longlist. And so for that to happen was just kind of like, wait, what? Like similarly, it was like the APA, you know, there were two papers out with my name on the author list. Like that doesn't happen for honours students. Like, I had an excellent honours thesis, got one of the top marks in my class. So rejection wasn't an option for me. I was like, well, yeah, clearly I'm good enough. Mm -hmm. And so because I didn't have that space in my mental framework for someone to say no to me, when that happened, when people, when I got that response, it was like, no, you're not good enough. And so, like, for for this um, development program, that's you're not good enough this time. Right? Like, we encourage you to apply in future years. But that was still just, like, it kind of shattered, like, not shattered my whole worldview, but, like, it was information that I hadn't allowed for existing, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I wonder if uh, a lot of that also is linked to how we um, identify ourselves and put, like, you know, how we value ourselves in our own eyes. So, for example, I don't value myself as someone who is generally attractive to other people. That's not where my personal value is. But I do value myself as someone who's 
generally smart and good at what she does. So if I approach someone and they reject me, that's not damaging to my view of my own identity. Like, that's cool. Whatever, you know. But if I spend this time applying for something that has something to do with my work or is related to my (laughs) quote-unquote intelligence, which is such a silly measure, (laughs) such a silly word in general, um, and then I get rejected, that's that kind of shatters my personal identity and view of myself. And I wonder if that's kind of similar for you as well. Is that like I've got a narrative in my brain of who I am and um, something external is evidence against how I view myself. My current mental framework is very much like a huge shift because um, all through high school, like I had a lot of pressure to do well, to get the highest grades to do the best, to win awards. And, like, I sort of made a joke. Like, I was invited back to my old high school to speak at their academic prize giving. And as part of that got, like, you know, a trophy for continuing excellence after school, which... Cool. Yeah, like, (laughs) I was was so pleased, right? But also, I had never won a trophy at that prize giving before. And it was just kind of like, oh, finally won a trophy, like at my academic prize giving only five years <laughs> after I graduated high school. Like, good job, everyone. Um, and I think like a lot of my mental shift had to come after high school where I like, cause you know, I didn't get the highest grades. Like I didn't win awards and a lot of the time I knew I wouldn't and that's kind of okay. But mm. equally like that really strong pressure I have for my parents to succeed was something I needed to not have internally Mm -hmm. and so I sort of had to make space in my mind for failure to happen and something that really helped with that was debating because in debating you either win or you lose but you don't do one of those all of the time and so losing a lot which will happen when you first start like that was really really good for me because it meant I always had to allow for failure but there are still some things where I'm very confident of my abilities where I'm like yeah obviously I'm good enough and so I don't allow for failure And that's when it hurts the most. I really want to focus in on one thing that you said just there. You said that losing a lot is really important. I think that's really important for everyone who wants, you know, has ambition in their own field, who wants to get better at what they do. That's an incredibly important skill to learn is failing well, being like dealing with rejection well and losing well. Because the way to get better at something is just to try a lot. Like the way that numbers work is that the more you try, the more you'll probably fail. But the more you try, the more you'll probably succeed. And I guess the key there is just to not let those failures hinder you from trying more. So getting really good at losing and failing and being rejected means that you actually get really good at being successful, at being accepted, at winning, quote unquote. Yeah. So I like how you said that it was really important to learn how to lose. Yeah, well, I mean, it's something actually my piano teacher said to me a lot while mm-hmm. I was growing up, is she was like, you're clearly brilliant. It's going to suck for you when you stop being brilliant or when you do something <laughs> that you're not great at. And I was just like, what do you even mean? And she's like, you're extremely oh, talented. Real. Well, and like she was always very frustrated with me because I never practiced enough, but she would often make the comment that I got away with it because I was very talented at piano. But I wasn't Mm -hmm. going to be talented at everything. 
And one day that was just going to fall apart for me. What an insightful teacher. God, she she was fucking great. Very, very blunt with me all of the time. She once asked me what I would do uh, if I didn't have, you know, like um, some key thing to rely on. I'm like, I'll get by on my good looks and charm. And she was like, oh, you are going to as well, aren't you? (laughs) I'm still (laughs) angry that you didn't practice this week, but you're going to do that. (laughs) But it meant, like, when I was at university, I made this conscious effort to do things that I was not good at. And, like, Mm -hmm. the sort of key thing that I ended up continuing to do was debating. But equally, like, I've sort of... It cannot be underestimated how much of your life is actually your personal framing. Yes. Mm -hmm. And broadly, I have stopped accepting failure as a thing because typically when you fail when you do not succeed you learn something i and i've had to work really hard to shift my framing for this but like essentially i now look at any time that i've learned something as a success yes Mm -hmm. and that means like i don't i don't necessarily use the word failure to refer to a lot of my life because you don't fail as an individual the thing that you were trying to do did not work. If you learned mm-hmm. something, that is personal growth and that is success. If you realize that you should pay more attention to learn something next time, that is personal growth and that is also success. <laughs> um, and that means like, that just means that I get very upset by random failures or failures where I can't get feedback or where a reason isn't mm-hmm. given. And like, that's mm-hmm. still something I'm working on, but it means like for most instances where I don't, get what i want essentially that's a failure right like Mm -hmm. i've learned something and that's good yeah but even in instances where you don't learn something like i like to think of um trying things as a a skill dice roll if you will like you try (laughs) your best you you put your your skill and training into it but sometimes it just doesn't work out and sometimes there's not a good reason and when there's not a good reason, that's when it sucks the most. But if you look at it more like a skilled dice roll rather than a very deliberate attempt at something that you have to either succeed at or get a learning out of, when there's no reason or no learnings, that can feel really shit. I don't know. If you imagine practicing a skill like kicking a ball into a goal or learning piano or doing foosball, I spent a lot of time playing foosball in the states and i sucked a lot for a very long time until eventually i got good but if you if you look at trials like perfecting a skill sometimes you're going to not get it and not learn anything like directly from that try but that's just another practice if that makes sense like you got another go at it and the more goes you have at whatever you're trying to do, the more you're honing a skill. And it's not going to be a steady climb up a mountain kind of thing. When you practice a skill, there's going to be plateaus, there's going to be dips, there's going to be relapsing. But if you keep going, you will get to where you want to go. It's just going to take a lot of tries and a lot of practice, right? So it's really awesome where when you do fail and then you get a lot of really good learning out of it. But I don't know. I see a lot of failure also as just me having another go 
at a skill. And that could be like, I didn't get the thing that I wanted, that I applied for. They didn't give me a reason. I asked for, you know, why I didn't get the thing. They didn't reply. That can feel really shitty until you realize that the act of you even trying yeah. is you getting better at the act of trying. Yeah. So that makes me feel a lot better when I like have no learnings to go off of. Yeah. Um, so a few months ago, I was on a panel with a woman called Penny Lacasco, and she has this rule where she tries to get 100 people to say no to her every year, which moves the focus from succeeding to the act of trying mm, and to mm-hmm. asking essentially for more than she thought she deserves. And she says she's found it really difficult because people keep giving her things. <laughs> <laughs> um so stuff like um she so her goal is to like essentially teach people how to be happy in the modern age and she's this fascinating woman to talk to um and very very fun essentially in order to be happy we need to not focus on success so much which is broadly mm. true um but then you pair that with the fact that people are presenting their best lives on social media and it becomes much more difficult yes yeah this idea that like you want to get people to say no to you you want to ask for so much that people tell you you can't have it is incredible and it often like it goes against a lot of um a lot of studies that suggest about how different genders behave when applying for things like there's that really often quoted study that's like you know men will apply for a job if they've got 40 percent of the skills whereas women will only apply if they've got a hundred percent of the skills And to switch that and to say, like, well, actually, I want people to say no to me. I want to Mm -hmm. find out where the limits are. I want to try for things that are way beyond my abilities. And if I succeed, that's great. And if I don't, I can cross another no off my list of 100. And that's just, that's wild to me. And Penny sort of said, like, when we were on this panel together, she was like, well, I have, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars in funding for my startup because I thought people would say no to me and they didn't. (laughs) 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 <laughs> and that's been incredible, but I've still got so many no's left on my sheet this year. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. That's such a good way to look at it. Yeah. I I haven't started doing that because I hate it when people say no to me still because I'm a mm. baby. No, same. Yeah. It's a really good thing to start thinking about and to start being like, well, if people say no to me, that's fine. Um, mm. And then move that extra step to being like, well, actually, I want people to say no to me. Yeah, because if you get people to say no to you, you're you're finding where the limits are. Yeah, and I, like I've I've had a partner at work say this to me as well, um, where I said, "Oh, like I won't worry about applying for something," and she was like, "The worst th- thing that can happen is that they say no, and that's what you've already assumed has happened." Right, that's really good. It's Gosh, I should try that, but that sounds <laughs> so hard. I know it's a good thing. I generally adopt new ideas into my life. And I think you talk about this with like New Year's resolutions and stuff is I start Mm -hmm. by thinking about them for a period of like sometimes a couple of months, sometimes a year. And then I'll be like, okay, I'm ready to start doing that now. Mm -hmm. I take time to get used to ideas. And I think this is very common. And I think this is a lot of Mm -hmm. what you mean when you talk about, um, because I know we've talked about on the podcast before about New Year's resolutions and how people don't succeed because they try to immediately make a big change. Yeah. But I find like if I give myself time to get used to an idea, then when Mm. I start doing the thing, I stick with it more. Yes. Yeah. In public health, there's there's a whole bunch of different models of behavior change. And 
a lot of them have very similar structures. Like you have to spend a good amount of time not being aware that something is bad and then a good amount of time being kind of aware that something needs to change but then not doing it. And then you have to spend like another chunk of time just dipping your toe in the water, trying something new. And then a big, like another big chunk of time actively trying to change behavior. And then another big chunk of time actively maintaining that behavior. And there's like all these relapse phases that can happen. But yeah, it's definitely like behavioral change is hard and it's a gradual, slow kind of thing that people have to work at over a long period of time. Yeah. It's like how I now pack and eat healthy lunches a lot. I do jar salads, but also I spent $12 Mm -hmm. on ice cream last night. Yeah. Whatever. It's like, it's a process. Yeah. yeah. I'm eating healthy, but I'm also eating ice cream. (laughs) But ice cream's so yum. There's a really nice caramel fudge ice cream in my local supermarket. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so good, Serena. Mm. It's so good. Um, I think one of the other ways of changing behavior is essentially tricking yourself into it. Yeah. So I definitely know, and like I've been tricking myself into this as well. Um, after Pokemon Go was first released, the amount of physical activity that people were doing just increased pretty dramatically because people were walking to mm. hatch eggs to catch Pokemon. Like it had this incredible mm-hmm. effect on nerds, essentially, like people who like Pokemon. And I've been using that because I need to go for walks, my physio, but I need to stop a lot. Otherwise, I get too tired and I just hurt myself more. So I downloaded Pokemon Go because it means I go for walks, but I also stop because I can't like focus on catching a Pokemon and walking at the same time. And as I'm getting stronger, that's tracking pretty closely with me getting better at walking mm. and catching Pokemon at the same time. <laughs> and so like I'm you know, walking a bit faster, I'm stopping less, and... I've been able to trick myself into doing that, into doing essentially things that are healthy for me by like just mm-hmm. slotting this video game in between me and the real world. Um, another really yeah. nice uh, hack I heard um, on another podcast actually, Do By Friday, which the last episode was very, very good, um, is when you're out for walks, just look at chimneys. Mm-hmm. Why? Ah, well, <laughs> I did it this morning and it just, it improves your posture so much oh and you don't even have to think about it because you're like oh i should look at a chimney and you do and then you're standing up straight oh my god yeah huh so yeah life hacks i yeah i like i like those hacks that are essentially like tricking yourself into being good (laughs) yeah because it's boring to think about like doing the right thing exercise eating right that that shit's boring but when you have something fun or something novel to focus on yeah Having said that, I spent like three hours yesterday cleaning my house and it was just like the best I felt in so long. <laughs> yeah, I do love that. I need to do that. I, I vacuumed need to do that. everything. My house is so clean. <laughs> the other big failure I have recently is I... So I don't really cook meat that often, but also mm-hmm. I slept 13 hours last night, so fairly obviously have low iron again. So I like I will try to eat red meat, and usually this will be kangaroo meat because it's the most sustainable, but, you know, I picked up some beef, a beef steak at the supermarket, and last night I was like, oh, I should give it a rub, and like I was having a bit of a salt craving, but I didn't really think twice about it, and so I made a rub, and I rubbed it on the beef, and then... I ate my steak and it was so fucking salty. 
because oh. I put a rub together when I'd had a salt craving. And so obviously I put just like so much fucking salt in it. <laughs> and I'm eating it and I'm just like, oh, this is not enjoyable. <laughs> like no, I'm so no. angry that I let myself do that. Yeah, that was my most recent big failure. What about yours? <laughs> most recent big failure. I applied for a bunch of, uh, to speak at a bunch of conferences. It's it's not even, it's not a big failure though. Cause, so I applied for um, a bunch of security conferences in Wellington, which are next week. Oh my God, I need to write my talk. Anyway, <laughs> um, I was kind of hoping that I would get into the biggest one, KiwiCon, but I didn't, I got into the other two. I mean, it was like... It's a mixed success. I, it it was a good ten seconds of me being like, ah, but it was still pretty good. And also, I think it was a blessing in disguise because KiwiCon is two thousand five hundred people, so yikes, <laughs> that's a lot of people, and it's single track, so um, that's everyone. Everyone's listening to you. They don't have another choice. Uh, whereas oh. the other two conferences are about one hundred and fifty, so like a much more manageable size. I don't know if it's some kind of like mental um, protection thing that I do, but I, I don't remember a lot of my failures, which I think I'm going to say is a good thing. I'm going to go with good thing. But have you ever really messed up cooking to the extent that you ba- made something that was basically beef jerky and then ate it because you were like, I spent like $6 yes. on this meat. Yes, I have. I have definitely messed up uh, a bunch of dishes. But again, it's all practice. Right? Yeah. It's all practice. And and you eat it and you feel shitty about it. And that's, I'm going to say, that's like um, conditioning. It's conditioning yeah. you to not fail again the next time. <laughs> I was sitting at my desk being like, should I wash this? Would that improve it? Like, can I just wash my cooked meat? <laughs> oh. uh, uh, potatoes. Pro tip. So if you ever oversalt something, add potatoes. If you oversalt a soup, just like chuck a whole bunch of potatoes in there and have a potato soup. Um, if you oversalt like steak or meat or vegetables, um, chuck some potatoes in and like eat it with potatoes. I, um, I've also done the thing where I no longer spice into any pan because once I was adding paprika to a dish I was making and the top came off and like oh. so much paprika went in. I'm like, this is fine. And I got as much as I could out paprika and then I went to okay. eat it and it tasted just like, okay, paprika's good in small amounts. When your entire dish tastes of paprika, it is not good. Yeah, I mean, I guess it could have been worse. It could have been, like, cayenne pepper. In which case, you, you'd either, like, eat it with milk or just chuck it. It would have just tasted like pain at that point. Yeah. Oh, sweet, sweet pain. With applying to your tech conferences, did you kind of accept mm. that they might say no to you before you applied? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think I've been incredibly lucky because it's just very it's very hard to get into conferences not because people aren't good enough but because there's just so many people applying and like like I said before like I've been on the other side of these kind of selection committees hiring whatever and it's a very hard job it's an extremely difficult job and you feel so bad because you know how good everyone is and you know how much time and effort everyone has spent on their applications 
but you've only got X amount of slots. And I've definitely been also, I've been on selection committees, if you will, um, where we've just been like, okay, let's just add an extra 10 seats because shit, it's just, it's a really difficult job. So whenever I do apply for things, it's like, eh, you know, I'll get it or I won't. It'd be nice if I got it, but if I don't get it, I know it's not personal. Yeah. And a lot of the times, like, another good way that I deal with rejection is to see it as a blessing in disguise, because now I don't have to do that job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I have to speak at two conferences next week, and I am not handling it very well. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's that's probably my next question. How do you deal with, like, talk nerves, which are essentially, like, a fear of failure as well? Yes, I deal with it. I Okay, I wouldn't recommend this, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, this is going to be good. I deal with it out of necessity. So I procrastinate because throughout the entire thing, the only thing I'm feeling is I, what I have to say is not good enough. It's not interesting. And I know that like a lot of this is whatever imposter syndrome, but I can't stop myself from feeling it at a very fundamental level that I don't have anything interesting or useful to say. And that I'm just kind of like grasping at straws trying to make this work. So that's where a lot of my procrastination comes from is because I partially don't believe in myself, which is, again, something I know is a thing I have to work on. And I'm partially also very bored with the things that I have to say because it's stuff that I've gone over so many times in my head before that I've like read so much about it that. I just don't feel excited about it anymore. And oftentimes it'll be like the day before the conference and then I'll be like, oh shit, well I guess I have to write this and then I'll fucking write it. Usually the day of as well, except I can't do that because I'm up first for both conferences. <laughs> so oh, I'm going to have to do it at least the day before. But again, I wouldn't recommend that. Don't If you're listening to this and you want to write a talk for a conference, don't please don't do this. <laughs> it is bad. Plan your talk accordingly right before, like at least a week or a month before. <laughs> Don't do what I do. I am in the process of learning. It really depends on the kind of talk you're given. But I usually, I will figure out the story beats of my talk and then just ignore it. <laughs> I'll be like, okay, these are the notes I want to hit. I'll do like a practice or two like a week beforehand and then like, yeah. I'm comfortable with this but a lot of the time I also don't give like incredibly fact-based talks now um because I get mm -hmm. given I get brought along to talk about you know experiences and there'll be like a couple of statistics I'll talk about in there but like not a lot and often their statistics I know really well and that's pretty chill um when it comes to scientific talks yeah you should write like beforehand but equally like academics like when they fly to conferences a lot of the time they're writing their talks on the plane right like I'm very blase about talks again because I spent so long not being good at talking and debating where like you get given a numerical score after you give a talk um and so I'm very much of the opinion that if no one comes up to me and they're like hey your talk was a 72 I'm like this is great um this is so easy yeah just being very good at not being good at talks if that makes sense and again this is something that like you really learn from playing a musical instrument because my piano teacher would always be like if you play a wrong note like i'll know but no one else will right it's chill just to keep going yeah hey everyone thanks for listening to this episode of things of interest uh this episode we've talked about rejection happiness 
failure, mistakes, and learning. <laughs> Basically, the outcome is that failure is fine, rejection is okay, and it's alright that they make us sad. I think that's a pretty good summary. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that seems like an accurate summary of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be great, you're going to be fine. Rejection is all a part of the process, it's a part of growing, it's another opportunity you've had to practice. Keep going, keep doing what you do, don't give up, you'll get there, I know it. Yeah, like maybe try and get a hundred people to say no to you in a year, or maybe just sit with that idea for like a minute the way I have been. (laughs) (laughs) As always, you can contact us we're on twitter we're at casting interest you can email us casting interest at gmail.com we're on facebook as things of interest and we're on apple Podcasts. so if you liked this episode if you liked another episode you can leave us a review chuck some stars up there or tell a friend like that's how people find out about us is when you're like hey i listen to this awesome podcast by two new zealanders one of whom sounds increasingly australian with every episode i'm so sorry <laughs> Very sad. (laughs) I'm heartbroken, but failure is a part of life, Serena, and I just need to accept it. As we've learned, yes. (laughs) Um, So I have been Sophia Friends. And I'm Serena Chen. And as always, stay interesting.